and welcome to the very first Investment Week podcast, where we analyse the biggest investment news stories of the week and speak to leading investors about the key themes and issues affecting the investment management industry. I'm your host, Hannah Smith. I'm the Deputy Editor of Investment Week. Uh, Investment Week has been the premier publication serving professional investors in the UK since 1995. You can find out more about us by visiting www.investmentweek.co.uk. So, kicking off this, our very first podcast, I'm talking to Max King from Investec Asset Management. Max is a strategist and a portfolio manager on Investec's range of multi-asset portfolios, so he's well qualified to talk about a range of asset classes. So, thanks for joining us, Max. The first topic I wanted to discuss today is the uh, surprise action by the Swiss National Bank uh, yesterday to remove the Swiss francs pegged to the euro. Now, this caused the single currency to suffer its largest one-day fall against the franc in history. And it's been taken by many commentators to be a sure sign that the European Central Bank will unleash full quantitative easing, um, or QE, next week. Now, there has already been growing pressure on the ECB president, Mario Draghi, to take action to support the recovery in the eurozone. Um, Figures for December revealed the eurozone is now officially in deflation. So, Max, what's your take on the chaos that we saw in the markets yesterday? It was um, quite unexpected, the SMB's move, wasn't it? Frankly, it shouldn't have been such a surprise, and we should have seen the possibility of it. The Swiss franc had been depreciating alongside the euro against the dollar, against sterling and against other currencies, and they weren't happy with it. It was becoming increasingly expensive to maintain the parity, and it was going to become more expensive um, as the Eurozone embarked on quantitative easing. So it shouldn't have been such a surprise that it happened. But you have to take your hats off to the Swiss. Uh, They have accumulated reserves of 500 billion uh, Swiss francs, which is about £50,000 for every person in Switzerland, simply by printing Swiss francs, uh, selling them to international investors, and reinvesting the proceeds in a diverse portfolio of equities, bonds, and currencies. Um, absolutely brilliant. Unlike the Norwegians, who actually had to get oil out of the ground to build a, a, a national wealth fund, they've just done it um, for free. So it seems to be taken as read now, then, that the ECB will unleash a full QE programme. Would we be looking at a deflationary spiral in the Eurozone if, if the ECB didn't act? Well, firstly, yes, it's highly likely they'll do quantitative easing, but we must remember that it's very unlikely that this will make a significant difference to the long-term economic problems of the Eurozone. It might lead, probably will lead, to some further depreciation in the Eurozone, which might have a marginal beneficial economic impact. But the reality is that all the money they plug into the economy, uh, 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 or rather into the banking system, will just probably end up being deposited back in uh, the European Central Bank. So the idea of it actually uh, invigorating money growth and credit growth in the Eurozone economy is extremely slim. Therefore, um, I wouldn't expect it to have any significant impact on the Eurozone economy. As for deflation, deflation is the big topic around the world. Um, I don't see what the problem with deflation is. If you go out into the street and ask people whether they think falling prices are a good thing or a bad thing, I can guarantee that 99% at least of the population will say they're a good thing. And 99% of the population is certainly not wrong. And as uh, Tim Bond points out, there is no evidence whatsoever uh, that around the world in comparable periods last year, consumers have deferred purchases as a result of falling prices. And the evidence of uh, all sorts of gadgets from uh, from, uh, 
mobile phones to televisions to computers uh, completely supports that. Also cars. People don't say, I'm not going to buy this because the price might be cheaper next, next year. They just go on and buy it. And so I think the, the uh, concerns about deflation are entirely misplaced. This is a good thing. It enhances consumer spending power um, and, uh, uh, and, that, and it is no barrier to economic growth at all. Another key issue that's been um, worrying uh, people about the Eurozone, of course, is, I hate this phrase, but Grexit, uh, a, a potential Greek exit from the Eurozone, this seems to have um, come back again. Uh, what, how much of a concern is the outcome of the, the upcoming Greek election? Well, I totally hate the term Grexit too, I, <laughs> I, I, I want to emphasise. Uh, people are, have uh, become a bit fussed about the Greek election. And the way I see the Greek election is the government basically has, uh, doesn't want to admit that it's never going to repay uh, their, uh, the national debt. Uh, and the opposition want to admit that they're not going to pay the national debt. I don't really see the difference in the two positions. Uh, it seems to me that even if the opposition get into power, the politicians will still want to get paid in euros. Uh, the Europeans will want some sort of fudge which enables Greece to remain in the eurozone, and actually things will continue very much as before. So I think the idea that um, Greece is going to leave the eurozone is pretty unlikely. Though I have to say, in the long term, the prospects of uh, the eurozone economy are pretty poor. Um, the eurozone economy is going to be, remain in stagnation, not just for years, but possibly for decades. Um, the example of uh, Italy, where you know, northern Italy was unified with southern Italy uh, 150 years ago, is a pretty stark one. It resulted in long-term stagnation uh, uh, and emigration uh, from southern Italy for 150 years, and there's no guarantee that that couldn't continue in, in, in Europe. So we shouldn't have any misguided long-term optimism about the Eurozone economy. That said, it is quite likely that in 2015, the Eurozone economy will, will be a bit better than expected. As a result of the benefit of falling oil prices, a weaker currency, um, and some sort of uptick in confidence. Um, so as an investor, how important are these macro headwinds? Is it maybe it's too easy to get hung up on the macro at the portfolio level? Um, what what steps maybe can people take to if they're worried about these various risks in the eurozone? We must always be on the watch out for macro events which really do matter for financial markets. And they do happen very, very occasionally. But the vast majority of macro events are just background noise, which keeps the, the, uh, the, the media schedules full and gives the, uh, uh, the talking heads something to chatter about, but don't make any real impact on financial markets. The fundamentals for financial markets is that we're in a long-term extended phase of, uh, of moderate growth and low, in great, uh, low inflation as a result of very low and, and systematically low credit growth. That means long, steady uh, up cycles. Um, people call this secular stagnation, which I, you know, which I think is probably uh, misguided. But it also means much less risk of sharp downturns. The boom and bust uh, cycle really has gone, I think, for, for a very long period of time. And that's a pretty good environment for companies. They can steadily grow um, um, earnings year by year. It's a pretty good environment for bond investors. Inflation stays low, so yields stay low. And for uh, investors overall, it's a pretty happy world. Don't expect great returns from equities, 20% plus. But you should expect that uh, equity markets go up in line with earnings and that, uh, and that uh, uh, bonds uh, don't give you great yields, but they're sort of okay. So, you know, be patient. You know, investment is going to be fine. Uh, it's going to be fine uh, as it was last year, as it, uh, this year, probably next year, and for several years thereafter. Just you just have to be patient. You're not going to get you're not going to get rich quickly. We have another perspective on Europe now from Jean Maigrot, who is the manager of the Longshort Newsmith European Fund. 
He spoke to Investment Week's editor, Katrina Lloyd, about his views on a Greek exit from the Eurozone, the so-called Draghi put and the European banking sector. Jean, the market's also waiting to see what uh, Mario Draghi is going to be announcing in terms of a QE package. Again, what do you think he actually needs to provide Europe here? You know, how, how, how big does it need to be to be effective? The uh, Draghi put, as the market likes to call it, uh, this time needs to be uh, much bigger than the 500 billion which is being mooted for two reasons. A, uh, it is widely expected that he's going to announce some sort of a QE program and in, on that basis for it to be effective it needs to be a surprise otherwise it, the, the, the impact will be very muted. And also uh, the effectiveness of QE uh, is now being brought into question unless it's done on a global basis like we saw on 2008 if it's done on an ad hoc piecemeal basis uh, the effects are very muted also let's not forget that when the US QE'd prime assets were at the stress level whereas now uh, they're, uh, across Europe they are uh, at fair value if not at a premium so uh, the transmission mechanism again may not work uh, as well as they were anticipating. And uh, lastly, given where we are in terms of uh, the lack of inflation in the system, you need to make it uh, substantial, and 500 is not substantial. And finally, what, what do you see as the impact on, on the banking sector? Because you had um, been taking some tactical long positions there, um, I believe. What, what do you think the impact will be there? Clearly, uh, depending on the size, you will have uh, a positive reaction to what we call the southern uh, belt, uh, and you can express that through uh, long in Italian banks and certain German banks, and also uh, I think a stock like uh, ING will uh, benefit uh, uh, on the upside on the QE announcement. How long that will last depends again on the size of the uh, of a program which is being put in place by uh, by the ECB. So the second topic I'd like to focus on today is commodities, specifically oil. Now, oil we know has been under pressure for some time, but the recent moves have seemed quite alarming actually. Uh, Brent crude has lost about half its value in the last four months. Max, what's driving this downward trend? Well, demand growth has been steady about uh, plus 0.7% last year. But we have to remember that's driven by uh, emerging markets, not by developed markets, where demand is falling. And what we're seeing is greater efficiency, uh, fuel efficiency for cars, for aeroplanes, and that's what's uh, pushing down developed market uh, demand. That's going to continue and spread to emerging markets where fuel subsidies are disappearing. So we're seeing declining demand, we're seeing um, steady increases in supply, and that, we now know, is why the prices have uh, fallen sharply. And it's likely that prices will remain low for some time. In the uh, medium to longer term, they'll pick up somewhat and uh, in due course, an absence of investment um, and uh, falls in production will mean uh, another shortage and prices will go up again. But that's not for quite a long period of time, I wouldn't have thought. And so where should investors be looking for opportunities with, uh, with oil at these levels? Well, one thing we do know from history, unequivocally, is that rising oil prices are bad for economies and bad for investors, and falling oil prices are good for economies and good for investment. Uh, the fall in the oil price constitutes a transfer of about $2 trillion a year 
from oil consumers uh, from oil producers to oil consumers and that's very good news for the global economy and for investors and that means that uh, investing in uh, global equities is likely to be a fruitful long-term thing to do um, and uh, you know I think you might want to be for the time being a bit cautious on the energy sector but do remember that uh, the in, that the energy sector will benefit from te technological advances from falling costs and so their ability to uh, to generate profits and cash flow um, is probably well discounted in current prices. Thank you for those insights, Max, and many thanks for joining us today. Now it's time for our News Roundup, where we analyse the biggest news stories affecting our market. Joining me to give her take on the latest stories is Anna Fedorova, Investment Week's Deputy News Editor. Tesco has rarely been out of the headlines since its major accounting error was revealed in September last year. But since then, the supermarket has been in the spotlight once more it's, as it unveiled a, a very aggressive cost-cutting plan. Anna, what exactly did Tesco do? So last week, Tesco announced a cost-cutting plan which is expected to save as much as £1 billion over the next couple of years. And it also cancelled its plan to pay a final dividend for the fiscal year which is also expected to save money. And the plan includes restructuring central overheads and simplifying store management, which Tesco's hopes will save £250 million uh, a year, although that will have a one-off cost of £300 million. So obviously it won't be all smooth sailing. It will involve job cuts. And in fact, it's ditched plans to open 49 new stores, which means thousands of new jobs won't be created either. Uh, and it all, it's also planning to close its salary-linked pension scheme, which is not ideal for the remaining employees. But the market seems to have reacted quite well to this plan, judging by the share price move on the day. Yes, the market reacted very positively. Tesco's shares jumped 15% on the day to 209p, which was the first time it traded above £2 since September last year. And at the time of this recording, shares were trading at 216 so they have continued to rise after the announcement. So is this a sign then that Tesco is finally getting its act together after struggling to compete with, with rivals? Could it be an opportunity for deep value investors? Well, although it is doing better, Tesco is actually still playing catch up with other supermarkets and it is still it does still have a lot of work to do. And let's not forget it's still facing a multi-year investigation by the Financial Reporting Council, the Serious Fraud Office and the FCA. Its Christmas sales figures were better this time around than in 2013, but like-for-like like sales for the three months to the beginning of January were still down nearly 3%. Add to this the plans to close down 43 unprofitable, unprofitable stores, and the fact it's just appointed a new UK CEO, and it's obvious the retailer is still struggling. Now, when it comes to investor sentiment towards the stock, it has been mixed. Tesco's third largest shareholder, Warren Buffett, um, the owner of Berkshire Hathaway, said in October that buying Tesco's was a huge mistake for him. But then there are quite a few managers out there who think it's a really good buying opportunity now. So, for example, old mutual global investors Richard Buxton has been talking about buying back into Tesco's recently. He used to own it. And um, Schroeder's Nick Kirridge told us a few months ago that he's initiated new positions in Tesco's, Sainsbury's and Morrison's in the Schroeder Income Fund because he expects future dividend growth from those stocks. So the attitude is really mixed. And uh, Morrison's, uh, Tesco's rival, has, has also been in the news with a high-level personnel change. The CEO stepped down after pressure from the board. What does that say about the, the supermarket sector as a whole? 
Yes, the CEO of Morrison's Dalton Phillips stepped down on Monday um, because the Christmas sales figures were also really bad for Morrison's and the share price dropped quite substantially initially, although it has recovered since then. But it does show that the supermarket sector as a whole is struggling and it may well be a difficult sector of the economy for, for quite some time to come. Now, another ongoing issue for investors, uh, certainly that we've been writing about a lot lately, is manager tenure. We've seen some quite high-profile manager moves in the last couple of years, um, and a few long, long-term uh, industry veterans have stepped down. Several high-profile investors that have hung up their hats in the last couple of years include Tony Nutt from Jupiter, uh, Graham French, Bill Mott, and Ashton Bradbury. Now, this is the problem, really, with with backing those fund managers that do have a very long and often very impressive track record. They do age, and eventually, they when they decide to retire, you are left with a decision to make as to where to put your money. It does beg the question, should investors be more inclined to back the, the industry's young guns in the first place rather than the older managers? What do you think, Anna? So fund selectors that we talk to have been doing a lot of research on the so-called rising stars of the fund management industry lately. For example, the fund rating service Fund Calibre named five of its top rising star managers this week. And another ratings agency, Square Mile, has compiled its own list of funds that it calls positive prospects and so on. But all these managers and funds um, still tend to have a relatively long track record and um, they tend to be ones that just haven't made a name for themselves yet. Fund buyers are still reluctant to back funds that are just starting out or that ones that can't justify their performance, for example. And often fund buyers also can't buy into funds that haven't reached a certain size. I think the bigger problem for fund buyers has actually been manager moves over the past 18 months or so. We've seen the biggest move of the asset management industry, of course, Neil Woodford leaving Invesco Perpetual to set up his own business. And then Bill Gross left PIMCO a few months ago, Julie Dean left Schroeder's. Every time something like this happens, fund buyers are faced with a very tough decision as to whether to stay with a fund manager or jump ship. Thanks for that, Anna. So that's it from us. We hope you enjoyed the very first Investment Week podcast, which we will be uh, recording once a month from now on, around the same time every month. We'd love to hear any comments you have or any ideas for future podcasts. You can contact me via email at hannah.smith at incisivemedia.com and we will be posting the recordings on our website www.investmentweek.co.uk. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 